0: And now, O Lord, as we come to Your Word, we remember, O Lord, that Your Word is sufficient, inerrant, inspired, infallible. We remember, O Lord, that Your Word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And we confess to You our great need to be trained in righteousness. We confess to You our great need to be taught, reproved, corrected. So we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word to accomplish these purposes in our lives. We pray that You would feed us with Your Word. We pray that we would hear the voice of our Good Shepherd calling to us and feeding us with Your Word. We ask, O Lord, that You would use the study of Your Word to conform us to the likeness of Your Son for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. Today we'll be continuing our study in John's Gospel, looking at John chapter 17, verses 14 to 17. Yes, we're going to be looking at four verses this week. I know, that seems kind of crazy. Don't worry, there's going to be a part two in two weeks. Uh, So so we are going to be looking at John chapter 17, verses 14 and 17, um, part one of, of this study As we go through this passage, one of the things that I think we'll be reminded of today is that the first thing that a person should really know about God is that God is holy. The first book that I read for seminary, which was all the way back in 1995, which was the summer before Christina and I got married, uh, the first book I read for seminary that summer was R.C. Sproul's instant classic titled The Holiness of God. I hope most of you have read that book. That book is an instant classic. It is so good. That book at the time, for me, absolutely shook the foundations of my entire world because it forced me to come to the honest realization of the fact that I had always been uh, very, very casual about my use of the word holy and about even my my very understanding of God being a holy God. Uh, one of the many, many profound things that R.C. Sproul wrote in that book included this quote, which which I think underscores the importance of understanding that God is holy. He wrote this, he said, "...when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of His holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness." There is no characteristic of God, there is no attribute of God, that's mentioned so frequently in Scripture as is the attribute of God's holiness. And R.C. Sproul was also quick to point out that there is no other attribute of God which is given threefold repetition in Scripture. Only God's holiness gets this threefold repetition. We know, for example, that God is love, right? Scri- scripture specifically says that, that God is love. But what it doesn't say is that God is love, love, love. We know that God is eternal, and the Scriptures attest to that. But the scriptures don't say God is eternal, eternal, eternal. But when we read of Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, we see that the seraphim angels, which, which were ministering around uh, the throne in heaven, were calling out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This threefold repetition of the word holy is there to ensure that you and I, as, as readers, don't just breeze by that term without becoming very mindful of it. Becoming mindful of it is very important. And in, in our language, like today, if I were to write something and I, I really wanted to draw somebody's attention to it, you know, I'd put it in bold letters, or I'd underline it, or I'd put something around it to make sure that people knew this word is really important. Don't miss this word. And that's why uh, holy gets a threefold repetition in Scripture. And as the seraphim called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah's response was to suddenly realize the reality of his ruin all he could do was cry out, woe is me, which is to say I am cursed. I'm a dead man, basically. Woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a terrifying thing it is for a sinner to stand before a holy God. See, Isaiah knew what God had said to Moses, that no man may see God and live. Why is that? Because God is so holy and we're not. So, what is holiness? What does that word even mean? I, I'm I'm not sure that most people know, which explains why so many people are so willing to just degrade the word that they use it as an adjective to describe things like cows uh, and smokes and uh, you know all all sorts of very lowly things. Think about that for a second, would you? Using that word to describe some of the lowest things that you can find on earth, does that seem like an appropriate use of a word that's used to describe God? Just think about that for a second. Does that seem right to you that we would use that word, holy, to describe things that are actually extremely unholy? Now we should understand that the concept of holiness uh, it has two primary meanings, two primary uh, connotations. First, God's holiness refers to God's perfect goodness. That is His righteousness. For example, when God says in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, "'Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy,' uh, He meant primarily that they needed to abstain from sin." Uh, Peter quotes this passage, reminding partakers of the new covenant, uh, that is us, by the way, uh, Christians, uh, reminding us that we are to be a holy people because our God is a holy God. And so, in this first sense of the word, it essentially means free from the corruption or free from the defilement of sin. Uh, so, in this sense, when God says, Be holy, for I am holy, he's saying, don't sin because I don't sin and I'm your God. Uh, But this is really not even the most common way that the word is used in Scripture. Uh, More often, it refers to God's otherness. The fact that He is different than we are. The fact that He is not among us. The fact that He is separate from us. This is why objects in the temple in the Old Testament, for example, were referred to as holy. Now, if you were to, to, to take a, a plate that was used in, uh, in the temple and, and to break it down into its components and everything, it was exactly, materially speaking, it was exactly the same as common ones, but it was holy. Why? because it had been set apart for God's purposes, and therefore it was to be separate from other more common objects. And so in this sense, when God says, Be holy, for I am holy, He's saying, be separate, because I'm separate. Separate from what? Separate from the world. So what He's saying is, Don't be like the world because I'm not like the world. Now, given that God is holy, given the fact that He is righteous and and separate, it shouldn't be too surprising to us uh, to learn that God's people are called to be holy in both senses of the word. We're to abstain from sin, yes, but we're also to be separate from sin the world. We are to keep His commandments, yes, we are to abstain from sinning, of course, but we're also to be in the world, but not of it. Think about what Hebrews says about holiness and how without holiness, no one can see God. As we continue our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer today in John chapter 17, We've entered into a section of the prayer in which Jesus is specifically praying for the disciples, but we understand that the things he's praying for the disciples, he's also praying just for the church in general. These things apply to, to the church throughout the ages. Specifically, uh, as we've seen, he has prayed that the Father would keep his disciples, and, and us by extension, in his name. That is, that their, their faith would be preserved, that they would endure, that their salvation would be secure even until the very end. The first means that Jesus prayed for in order that the Father would do this, would keep them in uh, in His name, was that the disciples would have His joy. Not worldly joy we saw last week, but His joy. And right on the heels of that petition that His disciples, and and, and we by extension, would have His joy right on the heels of that. He now prays that the disciples would be sanctified, which is a term that is holiness. So let's understand from the outset that Jesus is praying that His people, Jesus is praying that His church that He was going to build would not be worldly. He's praying that we would not be worldly, and that's the purpose of the passage that we come to today. The point of this passage is that Christians are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Uh, Now you might be wondering, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be of the world? What I mean is we're not supposed to think like the world. What I mean is we're not supposed to act like the world. What I mean is we're not supposed to speak like the world. And the reason that we don't think, act, or speak like the world is because our values are different from the world around us. So the point is, we are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. In fact, I don't think it's wrong to go so far as to say that there's ultimately, in truth, no such thing as a worldly Christian, although we are tempted to be worldly at times. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 make this case for us. They make it these verses make it crystal clear for us. There John writes this. He says, "Do not love the world nor the things of the world if all that is in the world, the love of the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts" but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So ultimately, I would say there's no such thing as a worldly Christian. It's an oxymoron. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be separate from the world, but not separated from the world. So Jesus continues His high priestly prayer in the passage that we come to today, praying in verses 14-17. to I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Throughout Scripture, God's people are... Called and, and told uh, in so many, so many ways, different ways, multiple ways not to be like the world around them. Sometimes it's an explicit instruction. Sometimes it's a story that just tells that general message. But the Israelites, for example, were not to form bonds of friendship or political partnerships with the nations and with the peoples around them. Instead, God instructs them in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6, and he repeats it in Deuteronomy 14 verse 2, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth now this is a message that we see overall throughout the book of judges for example although you don't find a warning in there uh, don't be like the world but you see what happens when God's people start to become like the world and start breaking God's commandments and becoming worldly over and over again we see that God's people are to be separate. So the Israelites weren't to give their daughters in marriage to the peoples of the land, nor were they to allow their sons to marry the daughters of the peoples uh, around them, because they were to be separate from those nations. They were to be sanctified and set apart for God's purposes. Over and over again, the Scriptures give us one admonition, one instruction after another to be separated from the world, to be separate from the world. Paul writes in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world. He quotes the Old Testament in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, when he says this, he says, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. By the way, the fact that Paul quotes uh, to the New Testament church what God had said to Israel in the Old Testament reminds us that the things that are written in the Old Testament are still relevant for God's people today. It still has an application for us today. James writes this in another crystal clear verse. James chapter 4 verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is why I say there's no such thing as a worldly Christian ultimately we've already seen that Peter also quoted from uh, the book of Leviticus when he said uh, when he quoted God saying be holy for for I am holy Jude also writes in verse 19 of his book these are the ones who cause divisions worldly minded devoid of the spirit you can find this in every book in one way or another throughout scripture The same point is just made in so many different ways. And why do you suppose that is? Why do you think that God, in His wisdom, when He gave us the Scriptures, told us in so many different ways to not be of the world? I'll tell you why it is. It's because the inclination of our flesh is to do what is easy and to do what everyone else around us is doing. And so with that in mind, even well-meaning Christians can and do occasionally cave into the temptation and the tendency to imitate the sinful imperfections that you can see in the world around us. This is why Scripture tells us so often, and in so many different ways, not to be of the world, even though we are to be in the world See, Jesus was at a point where He would no longer uh, be in the world. But the disciples would remain in the world. They would continue to be in the world after Jesus leaves. And so as Jesus prays for the disciples, He does so in light of the fact that the world hates the disciples, or will hate the disciples, because they hate Jesus. Because Jesus isn't of the world, and so they're not of the world. Uh, Jesus taught them and instructed them earlier in the evening about this when He was giving His farewell discourse. Back in chapter 15, He said in verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's a fact. He doesn't state it as a possibility. He doesn't state it as something that might happen. He states it as a present reality. When the unregenerate world loves people who claim to belong to Christ, something isn't adding up. And the mind-blowing thing is to consider how many Christian leaders, and I use that term a little bit loosely here, are absolutely obsessed with being um, liked and respected, and loved, and welcomed by the world. In fact, there's a whole movement in the modern church which is built on the ideas that if we can just convince the world that we're just like them, and if we can just convince them to actually like us, they'll actually be more likely to come to church. And this is where you get absolutely idiotic ideas uh, like asking the unregenerate pagans around your neighborhood, what kind of church would you like? And then taking their ideas and suggestions and making a church that's supposed to cater specifically to the lost. That is not the purpose of church. Church is for the sheep. It's not for the goats. So the idea that you make a church based on what people who hate God would want in a church is as stupid as you can get. It, it really doesn't align with Scripture. It really makes no sense at all. Let me tell you what kind of church appeals to the world, friends. A church that's filled with tares. A church that's filled with tears, A church that not only doesn't preach the gospel, But maybe they'll even be very careful about if or when they even preach the light, watered-down version of the gospel. They like, the pagans of the world will like a church that's run in accordance with worldly values. One that doesn't confront them in their sin. One that allows them to be comfortable. In fact, one that affirms them in whatever they may love and has the same message that the world has The idea that the church needs to be liked, the idea that the church needs to be respected by the world in order to reach the world is the single worst idea on the market, friends. The church will never be liked, will never be respected, will never be welcomed by the world. The church will always be hated by the world. Why? Well, first of all, we can say because Jesus promised that they would hate us. Why would they hate us, though? Because they hate God. That's why. And we belong to God. Notice again what Jesus said in John 15, 19. He said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. They hate us because they know that God has separated us from the world for His own purposes, by His own sovereign grace. Uh, in the words of Paul, Paul did not say, uh, everybody who lives a life in Christ Jesus is going to be liked by the world. No, what did he say? He said, everybody who desires to live a godly, persecuted. The world is a dark and dangerous place for a faithful Christian, a Bible-believing Christian to be. And yet, Jesus' prayer in verse 15 is not that the Father would take us out of this world. Instead, His prayer is that the Father would keep His people from the evil one. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So we're to be in the world, but we're absolutely not to be of the world. We're not to be like the world. Because the world, you have to understand, the world is not protected from the evil one. Which is certainly a reference to the devil here. Instead, the world is under the dominion of the evil one. Instead, the world serves the evil one. And this isn't hard to prove biblically. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There you have it. The world is under the dominion, under the influence. They are serving the devil. The only people who aren't, the only people who aren't walking according to the course of this world, and who aren't walking according to the prince of the power of the air, is Christians. That's it. Christians. We aren't to conform to the ways of this world. We have been set apart by God's sovereign grace and sanctified for God's sovereign purposes. And that can be very, very costly. Make no mistake about it. However, what can it really cost us? I mean, if you think about it, all it can cost us is what no man can keep forever anyway. What good would it do to gain? What good would it do to possess even the whole world if doing so requires that we lose our soul? Why do you suppose Christ prays here that His people would be sanctified? I mean, we're already Sanctified in a sense, right? I mean, we, we have already been set apart. Uh, we, we were set apart and chosen from the foundations of the world. That's from Ephesians 1. So why does Christ here pray that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart? It's because he knows that even Christians who mean well are constantly faced with the temptation to do what is easy. And blending in with the community around us, the people around us, is always what is easiest. And thus the answer is Jesus prays this because he knows the temptations that we face. In fact, He faced those temptations Himself. And He knows that if the Father doesn't keep us, if the Father doesn't preserve us in the faith, if He does not cause us to endure, we would not only cave into to those temptations, but we would be absolutely 100% consumed by the world. We would become exactly like the world. We would not only be in the world, but we would be of it by our own choosing, if the Father did not keep us. Because of this temptation, it's not as rare as it should be, that Christians hold on to the values and the virtues of the world around them. And we have seen this in the past few years in the American church like we have never seen before in history. The social justice cult, which is the religious arm of the satanic religion of progressivism. Make no mistake about it, progressivism is a satanic religion. They've claimed in recent years to be Christians, and yet their message is the same exact message that the world around them has. How many of you have heard me say it before, that the church and the world never have the same message I mean, I'll say it a million times if I have to, the church and the world never have the same message. Why is that? Because we have a different authority. But when, we, when there is the same message between the world and the church, it's not because the world suddenly loves and embraces the gospel. Rather, it's always, every single time, it's because the church has lost the plot. The church's message is different, entirely different, than the message of the world because our authority is different. What is our authority? It's the one thing that Jesus prays for here will prevent us from becoming worldly. Being of the world. Jesus says this. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what will prevent us From falling into the world? What teaches us to be sanctified? What teaches us to be separate from the world? God's Word. Now, let's be clear about something. The the world says, okay, well, that's that's your truth, right? Everybody's heard that? Uh, That people like to say, oh, that's your truth. Listen, there, there is no such thing as your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. That is just nonsense. There is truth, and then there is fiction. Uh, And and that's it. So when Jesus says that God's Word is truth, He means that it is true for everyone. Uh, That's the nature of truth. It's, It's true for everybody in every time, in every place. It's simply what corresponds, what lines up with reality. But everybody, because this truth is for everyone everyone will be held responsible for believing it and for obeying it. God's Word is truth, and that is the end of that discussion. We don't need to have a conversation about it. We don't need to beat around the bush about it. We don't need to add 50 pages of nuance and footnotes to it. It's true. All of it. We don't need to discuss it. We need to believe it. We need to submit to it. We need to obey it. Since the ancient times, the authority of God's people has always been God's Word. It's authoritative because it is true. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, Correction and training in righteousness. By the way, training in righteousness, uh, we should note, is central to being sanctified. It's central to being a holy people. God's people have always held God's Word as the standard of truth against which every other truth claim is measured. You want to claim something's true about reality? Okay, let's see how it lines up against God's Word. We've even confessed the fact that apart from God's grace apart from God's spirit enlightening us and enabling us to understand his word we are so corrupted by sin that we cannot understand God's word the Holy Spirit must enlighten us he must enlighten our minds or we will remain lost in the darkness and we will be confused at best but in our day we have jokesters who get in front of a bunch of christians let's all you know have unity together as if you, you know you, you can just pick and choose which instructions in scripture we're to keep and which ones it's okay we don't have to keep scripture is a is telling us what is true and it doesn't say you know this is optional but you have to believe this ultimately if you just want to make the main thing the main thing at all costs including disobedience you're not going to find the main thing. You're going to land in disobedience and foolishness. Truth is a terrible sacrifice for the sake of promoting or causing unity. Truth matters. And there are many, there are so many in the modern church who have absolutely butchered the absolute standard of truth to which Christians have always held that being God's Word and why do you suppose or or, or what do you suppose is going to happen when you butcher the authority of Scripture or when you set aside the authority of Scripture as our one standard of truth what happens when we do that I'll tell you exactly what happens it creates an enormously empty chasm it creates an empty space but that space is like a vacuum we need authority right? Everybody has some authority, but for most people, it would just be themselves. People need authority, so that space becomes like a vacuum, and once you set aside Scripture as our authority, that space has to be filled with something else, and so what ends up happening is that it, get, uh, it ends up getting filled with fallen man's worldly wisdom, and fallen man's worldly wisdom Ends up replacing scripture as the highest authority. Before you know it, a culture starts calling evil good and good evil because that's what fallen man's worldly wisdom requires. That's what it demands. That's what it all leads to. This is why Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not be partakers with them for you were formerly darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the lord Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We're to walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That means that we don't call evil good, and we refuse to call good evil. We don't join hands with the world in their deeds of darkness. We expose their deeds of darkness for what they are by holding to the truth. Where do we learn the truth? Where do we learn what is pleasing to the Lord? Scripture. Only Scripture. And we use Scripture to shine the light of truth on their dark deeds. What is truth? God's Word is truth. It is the highest and greatest, most unquestionable authority in the entire world. It's a higher authority than the president of the United States. It's a higher authority than the Supreme Court of the United States. It's even a higher authority than the Constitution of the United States. It has no equal. It has no parallel. Nothing holds the authority that scripture holds because God's word is truth. Why would we ever? Why would we ever even consider trading it for the wisdom of fallen man? God's word The Bible is the most powerful weapon known to man. Here's the wisdom of fallen man. If you don't like abortion, don't get one. I mean, if you apply that to almost anything else, you realize what a stupid argument that is. I'm pretty sure that the people who who use that argument are kind of aware of that. Or or how about this one? If you're a man, uh, you don't get to have an opinion on abortion again, you apply that to something else and you see like how ridiculous it is. And it's just so easy to dismantle these arguments, but fallen people would rather rely on ridiculously simple and dismantleable, if that's a word, argument than align with the truth of God's Word. Do you see that? Do you see that in the world around us? Fallen man's wisdom is this that it is better to make silly little arguments that anybody can dismantle than it is to be holy, than it is to repent and believe in Christ. But trading the authority of Scripture for the wisdom of man has a second and equally tragic. Consequence: The first consequence is that man's fallen worldly wisdom, which is absolute foolishness, becomes the new authority. But the second consequence, when the authority of Scripture is abandoned, is that the church's message becomes completely irrelevant. The church's message becomes completely irrelevant. Indeed, the church that does this itself becomes completely irrelevant. Irrelevant. Now, there are actually a, a couple Christian publications that have tried so desperately to be relevant to the modern world that they've actually become just like the world. Uh, the, the two publications I have in mind are, first of all, Christianity Today, uh, which Phil Johnson, I believe, has appropriately renamed Christianity Astray. And ironically, the second one is Relevant Magazine. Uh, the desire to be relevant isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's when we think that we have to become like the world to be relevant that it becomes a bad thing. The desire to be relevant, therefore, ironically, can very, very easily lead to irrelevance. The fact is, the church already is relevant. The church already is relevant because the Scriptures speak to us throughout the ages and the scriptures are always relevant so the church is already relevant insofar as she is faithfully proclaiming the truth of the scriptures the scriptures are always relevant friends keep that in mind the scriptures are always relevant chasing fads, chasing trends, that doesn't add to the relevance of the Bible. It certainly doesn't add to the credibility of our message. Instead, what ends up happening is it diminishes our credibility as messengers. Because it causes a person to become preoccupied with the world's agenda, with the world's fads, and with the world's trends, uh, the Gospel Coalition is another perfect example. Whereas once upon a time they were a, they were an organization that sought to address some some real concerns in the church, suddenly about seven or eight years ago they became what I call the social justice uh, or, or the social Gospel Coalition. I mean, they have really, really been compromised badly in the pursuit of relevance. You know, I remember back when we were uh, with the Evangelical Free Church, I remember one time sitting in a monthly meeting that I used to have with the local EFCA pastors, and there was one pastor who was just adamantly opposed to the idea that Scripture is inerrant or that Scripture is absolutely true. And in this meeting, he started boasting about how he was reaching his community by forming partnerships with Hindu, uh, Muslim, and, and Buddhist uh, leaders in the community. And when a couple of us kind of expressed a, a, a little bit of skepticism, he barked back at us, avoiding opportunities like this is just so foolish. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, but that's, that's to be expected when somebody abandons the truth of Scripture. The question is what do the scriptures say of such a venture where you partner with hindus and muslims and, and all these other worldly religions the scriptures say this second corinthians 6 14 it says do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness that's what the scriptures have to say about that kind of partnership the warning against being unequally yoked here doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to ministry, and it applies to so many other things in life as well. We are not to withdraw from the world. We're to be in it, but not of it. We're to be separate from the world, but not separated from the world. We're not to think like the world. We're not to speak like the world. We're not to act like the world because our values are different, and our values are different because... Our authority is different than the world around us. So we don't need to aim at becoming relevant. We need to be holy. And we need to aim for that. If, if we aim for holiness, we will be relevant. When we aim for being relevant, we hit foolishness instead and irrelevance along the way. The point, uh, the, the point of pursuing being relevant It starts with the question, what would the world have us do? Or what would the world like us to do? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what would God have us do? See, when the church starts asking, what would the world around us like us to do? Again, we've seen what happens. It's terrible. It's it's awful. The, The church starts echoing the exact same message that the world has, distracted from the one mission and the one message with with which we have been entrusted. If the world has concerns, what ends up happening, if you're just pursuing being relevant, what ends up happening is you just start echoing exactly what the world is concerned about. So if the world is concerned about poverty, the church starts focusing on poverty. If the world's concerned about hunger, the hunger, the the church starts being concerned about hunger. If it's homelessness, the church starts worrying about homelessness homelessness. If it's racism, the church starts focusing on racism. Stewardship of the environment, green energy, women's reproductive rights, drug addiction, alcoholism, the list goes on and on and on. The world has a lot of problems and a lot of concerns now i'm not saying that we shouldn't care about the problems that the world faces and i'm not saying that those problems aren't real they are what i am saying is that addressing them and trying to come up with a solution for them is not the church's mission and thus it's not our primary concern let me give you an example from this past week. Right now, I mean, how many of you guys are being hurt by gas prices? Gas prices are going up. Uh, for those of you who come from a long ways away, I mean, I, I, I know what a burden it is to, to pay so much money for gas. I, I have to pay that much money for gas. Thankfully, I can just walk to work. But I see how much gas is, and I do drive sometimes. So anyway, this last week somebody goes to the contact us link on the website, the church website, and they write us an email which says this. Vehicle gas assistance. Do you help with this? And the answer is we don't even sell gas at all. Um, but we do preach the gospel. Gas we don't we don't sell it. Sorry. But what good is it for a person to have gas to make their car run when they don't use their car or their gas to drive themselves to church on Sunday? What good is it if you have all the gas in the world but lose your soul? church a real seat at the proverbial table because the world has their own sources the world has their own authorities on issues like poverty and hunger and homelessness and all those things they don't need to hear from us they don't really want to hear from us we have nothing to add to the conversation as far as they're concerned pursuing relevance only leads to the church being the odd man out with nothing to say A third consequence of abandoning the authority of Scripture is that the church begins adopting the world's methods and solutions to problems. How tragic it is when we forget that the solution to all of the world's problems is the proclamation of the gospel. It seems so simple. It seems so unbelievable to them, but that's what it is. That's why that's the mission that's been given to the church. We're to be a city on a hill with the light of God's glorious gospel shining brightly for all to see, but trading the authority of God's Word for anything else, anything lesser, and it necessarily will be lesser if you trade it, dims that light. Listen, the world hates us because the world hates Jesus. The same Jesus who is the world's only hope. We must remain faithful to the Scriptures, and if we are, we will remain faithful to heralding this message. Children, boys and girls, those of you who are under, say, 10 or so years old, I think most of you are under 10 years old, we might have one that's 10. Uh, but I think most of you are under 10 years old. Can I talk to you guys for just a second here about how important this is and what this means for you guys? Because what we're talking about today is really important, even for you at your young ages. We're talking about things that might sound really complicated, but they're not that complicated. When you get a little bit older, kids, when you get a little bit older, you'll experience the temptation to do the same things that all the people around you are doing. Maybe you've already experienced that temptation, but it's important, kids, that you remember that it's better to do things God's way than it is to do things the way that the people around us, the world around us, is doing things. It's more important that we have God's approval and that we please God than it is that we please people around us and get people's approval. Now, it's normal for us uh, kids. You guys probably know this, right? We want to be liked. How many of you kids want to be disliked? Yeah, no hands, right? (laughs) Mike, not you. It's normal for us to want to be liked. We don't like it when people don't like us. That's natural. But what if you see people around you doing things that you know will make God either sad or angry? If you did those same things, maybe those kids... Would like you. Maybe they'd like you more. But the question is, would God be happy about it? That's the question. What would make God happy, kids? Do you guys know what would make God happy? I'll tell you the first thing that would make God happy. It would make God happy if you believed in Jesus. And if you believed in him so much that you were actually willing to follow him and to obey Him. Even if obeying Him means that there are going to be some people who don't really like you. But let me ask you this, how do you even know what's right or wrong? How do you know uh, whether you should do something or whether you shouldn't do something? I mean, your first answer might be, of course they do. So that, that's one thing, but, but how, do, how do your parents know? How do they know what's right or wrong? the way to know if something is right or wrong, kids, is by what the Bible says about it. If you get in the habit of checking what the Bible says first and then comparing what the Bible says to what people are doing and what people are saying, if you get in the habit of doing that now while you guys are still under 10 years old, it's going to be so much easier for you when you get older to do that. Friends, Moms and dads, adults, do not love the world. Do not love. There's always a temptation to love the world, but do not love the world. And do not even strive to be loved by the world. Resist that desire, because it will only lead to one compromise after another. Light has no fellowship with darkness, just as Christ has no fellowship with the devil. Do you know why God hasn't already destroyed this world? It's because He's not done calling people out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's not done doing that. Peter writes this. He says that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's from Second Peter 3.9. This is to say that there are still people who are elect from the foundations of the earth, who have not come to saving faith in Christ yet. Yet. But, but Peter continues writing this. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth with its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the application. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-12. to 12. Resist the temptation to be like the world. Do not love The world the world is going to come to an end with an outpouring of God's holy wrath that is worse than anything that any of us have ever seen or imagined. But knowing this result, knowing this should cause us, Peter says, to act holy. It should result in our holy conduct. It should result in our godliness. And it should result in our looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. What that means is preach the Gospel faithfully. Know God's Word. Memorize God's Word. Submit to and obey God's Word. And as you do, what Scripture attests to is the fact that it will have the effect of increasingly sanctifying you. Separating you unto God in holy, practical living. It will both teach you and cause you to be in the world, but not of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it confronts us. Thank You for the way that it corrects us. Thank You for the way that it trains us to abstain from what you instruct us not to do and to do what is pleasing unto you. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word in every situation, and we thank you for the sufficiency of the gospel, which is ultimately the answer to all of the world's woes. We know that apart from your grace giving us understanding, and your grace sustaining us, and your grace motivating us that we would not be faithful with the message of the scriptures we would not be faithful to proclaim the gospel but we pray oh lord that in light of your work through the holy spirit that we would be faithful we pray for you to go before us and create opportunities for us to share the gospel to preach the good news that reconciliation with you is possible through believing in Christ. And that apart from Christ, all will perish. All will be lost. We thank you, O Lord, for entrusting us with this message. And our desire is to be faithful stewards of this message. By your power, by your grace, O Lord. May that be said of us. Not because of us, but because of your sovereign work in us. We ask, O Lord, that You would use us, that You would set us apart from the world, that You would help us to be separate and different from the world in the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak, and in the authority we yield to, that Christ would be glorified in our witness. It's in His name we pray. Amen.